94.7 Kumu, KUMU Honolulu, proud to be locally owned and operated by Pacific Media Group, presents a special edition of Hawaii Matters, Black Lives Matter. And now, your hosts, Devin and Esme. Good evening and welcome. This is 94.7 Kumu. Aloha, welcome to a special edition of Hawaii Matters, focusing on the issue of Black Lives Matter. Thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Devin. And I'm Esme. And we're the co-hosts of the Rise and Drive Morning Show, 94.7 Kumu, together with Pacific Media Group, is proud to present this live on-air forum, which will go until about 8 o'clock tonight, bringing together some of Hawaii's foremost community leaders to talk about issues of systemic racism, inequality, and hate violence in the framework of the death of George Floyd and the huge resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and protests worldwide and here in Hawaii. Yes, thank you. And uh, we think what sets this conversation apart tonight from others you may have seen on national networks is our focus tonight on Hawaii, how the islands are doing, what work should be done here in Hawaii, what steps Kama'aina can personally take to help all of us do better. And by the way, we want to also uh, say mahalo to all of our listeners, uh, not only who are listening on air, but also online. So mahalo for that. Uh, There's been so much, uh, we think, frustration and pain over millennia and over generations uh, surrounding tonight's topic, our goal tonight is to move the conversation forward and bring as many people along as possible. Uh, we do mean for this conversation to be accessible for everyone. So whether you've been following these issues a while or you've just begun really paying attention because of the new focus uh, on George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and the recent protests, uh, this is accessible and meant for you. And uh, of course, also with the new situation with Reynard Brooks in Georgia and all of these other recent developments, uh, tonight we invite invite you to listen to our esteemed panel of local leaders and please get ready to pose your questions and comments. Uh, you can post them on our Kumu Facebook right now where we have a call for questions. And also later on in the program, we will be taking live callers in the second half of the program, which again will go until eight o'clock. All righty. So shall we get started? <laughs> Let's start by welcoming our guests. First, I'd like to introduce Alfonso Braggs. He's the president of the Honolulu Hawaii NAACP. We also have Susan Ballard, Chief of Honolulu Police Department, Dr. Akemi Glenn, Executive Director of the Popolo Project, and Dr. Noilani Goodyear Kaupua, the uh, Head of the Political Science at University of Hawaii at Manoa. Yes, absolutely. And uh, we'd like to give our listeners now a chance to get acquainted with our guests. So let's start off by giving them a chance to introduce themselves briefly uh, for a minute or two each. And uh, so our guests, please do introduce yourself, maybe give a bit of your background and why you felt it was important to be with us and join the conversation tonight and give up a part of your Sunday night <laughs> to be with us. Uh, perhaps also including what uh, you know the past few weeks have been like for you in light of what's been happening uh, around the world and the protests and so forth. Uh, let's start off with uh, Mr. Alfonso Braggs, president of the Honolulu Hawaii NAACP. Aloha. Thank you very much for having me here today, especially with this distinguished panel. So I've uh, been a resident of Hawaii since 1992. I am, uh, as you mentioned, the current president for the NAACP here in Hawaii that covers Guam, Korea, Japan as well, and I serve on the National Board of Directors. Uh, I also hold leadership positions in Alpha Phi Alpha and Prince Hall fraternities. And I think it's important for us to have this uh, conversation and this dialogue this evening given the current events that are taking place nationally, and I don't think that Hawaii is absent 
of the need to have this conversation. At the same time, we're quite blessed, immensely fortunate that we are not experiencing some of the situations that our family, friends, and colleagues are experiencing on the mainland. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much for that. Uh, next, we'll have Susan Ballard, Chief of the Honolulu Police Department. Aloha, and thank you for having me here. Um, I've been in Hawaii since 1982, and I've been in the department since 1985. Started out as a foot officer and uh, rose up through the ranks and eventually became chief. Um, what have we been doing the last few weeks? We've been very busy the last few weeks. Um, this is um, something that law enforcement is, I wanna say the epicenter of a lot of this. Um, it, it's a topic that needs to be discussed. It's a topic, um, like Alfonso says, not just on the mainland, but also here in Hawaii as well. Um, when you're talking about uh, not just the African Americans, but also Native Hawaiians as well. Um, and I think that everybody, um, at least as far as law enforcement is concerned, should be treated fairly and should be treated equally. Um, no one should have any more rights or less rights than anyone else. So thank you so much for having me. Thank, thank you, you, Chief. Thank you very much, Chief. Uh, next, we'll have uh, Dr. Kemi Glenn, Executive Director of Popolo Project. I'm really fortunate to be here with this very interesting panel. I can't wait to see how this conversation unfolds. Um, the Popolo Project is a small community organization that's based here in Hawaii, and our goal is to explore the specific experience of being black here in Hawaii and in the Pacific more broadly. And in doing that, we're hoping to help kind of redefine and, and kind of reorient the way that we talk about blackness and black people, our history, our contemporary communities, and, and also our future. So I think uh, forums like this, this kind of conversation is really important for us to be able to talk specifically about what's happening here on the ground, what has happened here, um, and also understand what makes Hawaii special and unique. Um, the last few weeks for us have been have been really challenging. As Alfonso has said, um, many of us are connected to people on the continent. Even if we we're born and raised here, we might have family elsewhere. Uh, I know my own family was connected to George Floyd's family. Uh, my family is originally from North Carolina, where he was born, and some of his family is still there, and some of my family were connected to the folks at the funeral this last weekend. So even though these things seem like they're far away from Hawaii, they still touch us. Um, and I'm really excited about you know, the opportunity for us to humanize some of what people are seeing in the news media and have our local community understand that um, there are black folks here who are your neighbors and relatives and friends and coworkers. Thank you, Akemi. That was, uh, we re really appreciate that. Uh, next up, we're going to have Dr. Noelani Goodyear Kaopua. She is the head of political science at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Aloha mai kako. Mahalo Devin and Esme for having us here. Uh, so yeah, in my work, I am a professor and chair of the political science department. My research focuses on indigenous and native Hawaiian politics. Um, but beyond that, as a, as a person, I'm a Kanaka Maoli who was born and raised here on Oahu. Um, I am a graduate of Kamehameha schools. I've been a participant in Hawaiian uh, community organizations for my whole life and one of the reasons why I am honored to be on this panel uh, with these wonderful guests is 
that I wanted to try to bring to the conversation why it's important for Native Hawaiians and other non-Black local folks to stand up and express why Black Lives Matter to us and um, how we can best be allies and um, change agents for justice. Um, I'm also interested today in you know, raising the ways that structural racism operates um, specifically in Hawaii, which is somewhat different than on the US continent. Thank you very much for that. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for the introductions. Uh, we're gonna dive right in. Um, some people are saying um, Hawaii, we, we don't have these problems. We grew up, we're multicultural, we're a melting pot, um, and that this is more relevant to the, to the mainland. Um, what are your first reactions to that? Um, can you share some statistics or stories, maybe some of your own personal experiences that sort of uh, either go counter that or if there's something you wanna mention? Well, I'll delve right in. I, I think that in order for us to have this conversation, we kinda wanna put in perspective uh, what is it like being black here in Hawaii in contrast to our friends and family on the mainland and other places in the world? So first of all, I think we, we look at population. We're just under 3% of some approximate 1.4 million people here. And I think that most of the folks that are here are here in some way associated with the federal government, either through military or some other service, or they come here because of a professional career and they meet a friend, family, uh, decide to stay. Within that context, for people who come from different parts of the mainland, uh, it is an adjustment at first. It's the most beautiful place in the world that I have lived and it's a very healthy place to live, coexist, and raise a family. It is also one of the most diverse places uh, for an American citizen to live. And I think that the realness is that we're not without racism, discrimination, and issues. It is just not a uh, proportion to what uh, folks are experiencing on the mainland. So some of those issues that African-Americans have to make adjustments for is that most people grow up believing that racism has to do predominantly with a white or a black uh, example. And I think that's the polarization that we're fed as we grow up. It's not until you get into a very diverse place like Hawaii that you really uh, understand what it means, what race relations is all about. For African Americans, there is this expectation that once they come here, that a person that is not Caucasian uh, would not discriminate against them and that they would not have issues. And there, it's a little bit of a shock treatment when they do find uh, and experience that. So I think those are some initial points that once you kind of take the reality of that, um, you, you know, you can kind of begin to deal with, okay, so now that I'm past the shock treatment, how do we uh, adjust? Then the other one is that uh, we're in a generation in 2020 where a lot of our children and grandchildren are not experiencing what some of us older African Americans experienced in the content of what was racism. Race is still racism, but it's a different form. It is, uh, and, the, and the kids nowadays 
don't really see it in the context that we saw it. And so I think part of the uh, comfort that we are experiencing now is seeing the young people so engaged to really say, you know what, we're going to take some ownership of defining the change that needs to exist for future generations. So I think in that, and when we look at it from that perspective, we are probably prepared better to kind of talk about what does it mean to be black in Hawaii and have a conversation about race relations. Hmm. Wow. Uh, Alfonso, do you mind, uh, can I get an example possibly, like how the younger generation perceives this as opposed to uh, the older generation? Uh, with regards to, to racism and stuff like that? Because you said it's changed a little bit. It has, it has changed. So I, I would use an example of w- when I went to my first, second, third, fourth, fifth grade, uh, it was all black school. Children nowadays don't experience that. Mm-hmm. Children nowadays are exposed to different medias, mediums for information. And the... the uh, there was also, when I grew up, uh, the family, the church, and the home were those three pillars that the society existed among. And so nowadays, kids are truly living somewhat a little bit more dependent. They have instant access to influence things that, and so nowadays, children have a different uh mindset about what information they receive, whether or not it is filtered. So, and also they don't have some of the disciplines that we growing up had to protect us. So we had to validate certain things before. We had accuracy in the media more than what now and so it is the influence of social media i believe that drives a lot of the reactions by young people so we have a double duty of not only trying to address the issues that are being raised but also making sure that our young people are not being misled with misinformation and disinformation that further divides our nation Thank you very much. Um, 94.7 Kumu, we are here on a special edition of Hawaii Matters. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'd be interested to hear also from our other guests, again, on the question of, you know, people assuming that Hawaii doesn't have these these problems um, and, and your own perspectives, perhaps with some statistics, uh, stories, or your own personal experiences here in Hawaii. Yes, uh, Akemi. Yeah, I would echo a lot of what Alfonso's just said, mm-hmm. kind of about the, the lay of the land. So we're about 2.5% of the population here. Just to put that into some comparison, though, um, Samoans are about 2.5% of the population as well, a group that people often think of as, as very local, right? Um, and depending on how you categorize them, our Micronesian community is also around 2 to 3.5% of the, the community here. So we're talking about small in numbers, um, but with a very large cultural impact as well. So a lot of people in Hawaii um, are connected to global black culture, whether that's reggae music, 
um, <laughs> whether it's you know the the celebrity of our of our sports uh, figures and other things like that. So we're we are very visible in some ways, and in some other ways, you can imagine just based on the numbers, kind of invisible. And part of that invisibility also, I think, has to do with some of the history of Hawaii and some of the migration to Hawaii. And in fact, a lot of what we think of as local culture comes from the African diaspora, even if it doesn't necessarily come straight from North America to Hawaii. So we know that there were um, immigrants that came from Cape Verde, which is an island off, a set of islands off the coast of, of Africa, of African descent, many of them. We know that a lot of those folks ended up just kind of becoming Portuguese, even because they spoke Portuguese and culturally had that influence, but were, were people of African descent and their culture and traditions became part of what we think of as local. Same thing with Puerto Ricans who came here in the early 1900s and, uh, and early groups of African Americans who came here. Of course, as Alfonso says, many people started to come uh, with the military and with federal jobs. One of the things that's interesting about that history is that um, in comparison to African-American and black communities across the US, we have a, a group of people here in Hawaii who have a slightly higher socioeconomic status. Um, so you're looking at folks who are working more professional jobs on average than you see in other black communities across the US. Um, at the same time, we do still have, we still have issues of racism here. And uh, there have been a number of, of issues, um, not so much involving policing and law enforcement here, but a lot of kind of larger cultural issues. There have been issues of uh, discrimination and harassment at work. There are a couple of corporations that just in the last couple of years settled with employees who had been harassed with nooses mm -hmm. left on their lockers. Oh, no. um, those kinds of things happen in Hawaii. So even as diverse as we are, there are still lots of those ideas that circulate. And so. Part of the issue, I think, is um, because we are small numbers and because we are far away from, as Alfonso says, this kind of paradigm of white versus black as the only kind of oppositional racial antagonism, um, a lot of people are not equipped with the vocabulary or even with the identifiers of what structural racism actually looks like here in Hawaii. Mm, thank you. Thank you, Akemi. Um, I think Noelani had, when we were talking earlier uh, off air previously, we were talking about black Hawaiians and kind mm -hmm. of some, some, I think, out in the general public, the lack of information about that. Can you elaborate a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I, I think it's important for us to um, think about the ways that black folks have been incorporated into our ohana here, right? And so oftentimes, the way the black community here gets represented is um, African Americans who have settled more recently. Um, and it's not the case that there weren't black people here um, for a long time. In fact, in the Hawaiian Kingdom in the 1850s, there was a law that was passed um, welcoming folks, you know, there's no slavery here in Hawaii that people, if they could escape from the United States to get here, would be free. And there were um, stories even at, at that time of uh, people who, like John Blossom or Anthony Allen, um, you know, arrived here in Hawaii, established um, relationships with the leaders at the time. You know, that's, that's historical, but I also think about my own um, communities now and I, as I mentioned earlier I'm a graduate of the Kamehameha schools which is you know native Hawaiian um, ancestry and had classmates who are black kanaka um, I've had students now both when I was teaching um, at Halau Kumana Hawaiian Charter School and at the University of Hawaii who are black and native Hawaiian great friends um, who also you know share those genealogies and so I think it's really important for us to um, 
be more expansive in the way that we think about who the black community is in Hawaii. Got it. Thank you. Thank 94.7 you Kumu, you're listening to a special edition of Hawaii Matters uh, focusing on Black Lives Matter. Um, also want to talk to Chief Ballard because Chief Ballard, actually, you, uh, you came here from uh, the mainland where I'm sure you had your own kind of experiences with, uh, with racism, things like that. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, you know, listening to everybody talk, I, I agree with everything. And it was kind of an interesting ex um, experience for me. So I came over here in 1982. Um, I came over here from Tennessee, North Carolina. I went to school, um, born in Virginia, so from the South. And pretty much where I was, where I grew up, and the college towns too, I mean, it was you either black or you were white. Um, I think there was like one uh, Japanese uh, gentleman, and that was it. And so when I came over here to Hawaii in 1982, um, it was just sort of a fluke. I was actually going to move to L.A., and then I didn't like it over there, so I jumped on a plane and came over here. And when I landed, um, it was an interesting experience because when I looked around, very few people looked like me. And when I went to um, get a place to, to rent, um, I had gotten on a bus, and I didn't know where I was going. And I know the first thing as I got on the bus, somebody told me, hey, F and Howley, get in the back of the bus. Well, I didn't know what that was. I was like, what are you, who are you talking to? I kept looking around to see. I had no idea. <laughs> um, but you know what was so great about here? It took about six months to get used to everything. But once I got to know everybody as a person, as an individual, you don't see them as groups of people. You see them as individuals. Um, a wonderful lady by the name of Marsha, she actually rescued me from a, a, an abusive situation that I was in. And she took me under her wing, did not even know who I was, had no clue who I was, local girl, let me sleep on her floor in her 300 square foot apartment for three or four months until I was able to, um, you know, get my own place. So I, you know, I being from where I was, I never really experienced that type of thing before. You know, any type of racism, um, anybody who spoke out against um, being white. Uh, I took a Japanese gentleman to the south with me, and I went to a, a restaurant, and they refused to serve me. I went in the restaurant, and they refu they refused to serve us, and I've never was so humiliated in my whole life. So it's there. It happens, and it's even here in Hawaii. Um, things have gotten a lot better, um, but it's still there. Thank you, Chief. Um, that actually uh, takes us uh, naturally in uh, segue into our next question. And by the way, uh, this is 94.7 Kumu. You're listening to a special edition of Hawaii Matters focusing on Black Lives Matter. Uh, we did want to tackle the issue of law enforcement uh, here in Hawaii, and especially in light of concern, again, of what, you know, over what happened with George Floyd and others. Uh, we are wanting to hear from each of your different perspectives. Um, what do you believe is the situation in Hawaii in regards to law enforcement? There's been so much focus on that topic. Um, you know, what is working in local law enforcement and what needs to change? Um, and uh, I, I, I think I would like to start with the chief and, and, and get your perspective on that and then uh, work around to our guests since that is the topic of the moment. Um, 
you know, in our police department, when I, we take a look at uh, the nationalities, the ethnicities that we have in our department, um, we reflect the community. Uh, when I took a look and broke down the, the statistics, actually the biggest gap we have in our police department is a gender gap, male versus female. Um, so I think the difference with our police department is that our officers are from our communities. So there's, I don't think there's anybody who's lived for any time on this island that doesn't have either a family member in the police department or a friend who's in the police department. And so we're connected in that way as a community. Um, so I, I see it as, you know, so much more, um, uh, I guess, understanding about what's going on. And, you know, and I think it, you know, reflects also too, you know, I, I look at how um, law enforcement is reacting to the protest on the mainland. Um, you know, when you come to a protest dressed in riot gear, you're going to get what you ask for. Um, and over here, our um, approach is just more of a, a tiered approach where we send people there with Aloha attire, um, you know, to try and talk to people and make sure that everybody, you know, stays safe. So, you know, I think there is a big difference between how our law enforcement works as, as far and, you know, as well as, you know, the, the mainland. And when I look at every time that there's a fatality, a shooting that happens on the mainland, I always take a look at it and say, would this happen over here? How is our training? Is there a way that we could have avoided this if this had happened over here? Um, and whenever we go to these meetings, we find that actually our department is really heads, um, you know, heads and shoulders above other departments as far as training. Um, there's some things that are lacking that we do need, um, and I can go. <laughs> just cut me off when I when I <laughs> when you need to but um, we do need training and it's been very interesting um, with this whole thing because I I never really thought about you know unconscious bias um, or racism uh, but you know I think everybody and there's no one that can say that they don't have a bias towards some nationality some ethnicity there's some bias towards whether it's the Japanese, Chinese, Koreans, um, African Americans, white people, there is that bias. But if you at least know that you have that bias, then you can treat people the right way. That bias, you can control that bias the best that you can. Um, and, and, I, and I see that all the time, um, you know, because of our multicultural and our, you know, all the different uh, uh, ethnicities that we have in the department and on this island. Um, you know, besides the awesome food that we all give each other, uh, you know, just the fact that we can all work together um, and, you know, achieve the same goals. Chief, is that an actual direction that you've been giving your officers? Like, have you given this speech to them or, or given a direction to them specifically regarding uh, recognizing your own biases and then being careful in the way that you apply your knowledge or your biases as you are out on duty? You know, I always, um, I do these things, they're called vlogs, and I send them out to the officers. And the latest one that I had was that, you know, um, we all have our way of thinking. We all have our opinions, and that's okay. You can have your opinions, but once you put that uniform on, you become neutral. You do not take sides. You represent everybody. So um, that's pretty much the way we go, is that once you get that uniform on, I always call it, you know, you're, you're down Switzerland, you're neutral, um, and no sides are taken. You put your opinions and you put your biases aside, and you treat people the way, and I always use the golden rule, you always treat people the way that you would want your family to be treated. 
Thank you, thank you. Um, for our other guests, do you d is this perception of the police department here in Hawaii your perception well, of I think the way I, that I, it works? I just wanted to jump in on yes. maybe before we get into what needs to change, mm -hmm. also stepping back to think about what are some of the problems, right? And we have a really interesting and unique situation in Hawaii um, in that, as the chief said, you know, Native Hawaiians, for example, are actually overrepresented in the police force, but we are also overrepresented in um, in the prisons and jails here in Hawaii, actually at a rate of four times higher than um, white people. Um, and black people are overrepresented at two and a half times more than white people in um, being incarcerated here in Hawaii. So I think that's something that is an interesting dynamic, right, that we need to think about. And so it's, um, Taking a look at implicit biases is one thing, and the ways that um, black and brown people have been represented in popular culture, for example, as more um, close to criminality, or, you know, um, I can think about when I was uh, <clears throat> even growing up, the ways that uh, Hawaiian or Polynesian men were routinely represented in the local media, you know, most often in those kind of, um, in those kind of ways as being criminal. Um, and we know that those kinds of representations impact the way that people um, make split-second decisions and, and that implicit bias comes up. And of course, you know, that inequality within the criminal justice system here is not just about policing, right? It's a much bigger system than just um, policing. But I think one thing that's sort of interesting to think about in relation to the point that Akemi made earlier is that part of it has to do with class and socioeconomic status, right? That um, that very oftentimes the people who are being um, surveilled and impacted or have been engaged in um, activities that might bring them into conflict with law enforcement um, are also dealing with issues of social inequality and poverty. Did you? Um, yes, go ahead, Alfonso. It looks like you had uh, something to say on that also. Well, I, I think it's important for us with respect to what has been said to understand a couple of things. In the mainland, we have actual African-American communities. And uh, here in Hawaii, we do have certain ethnic communities or predominance of races in certain communities. And so I think when we talk about or when we respond to, because there is not uh, a African-American community, uh, that is a contributing factor. Uh, I think that there is a cultural indifference. And uh, when we talk about training and understanding and dealing with certain situations, it is the lack of understanding of what may be culturally unique to that group of individuals who, you know, just happened to move here to Hawaii and uh, things that may have been okay in a community wherever that person come from. And, and African-Americans are not the only ones. I, I think of Micronesians uh, and others who come here and now it's about acclimating to a certain community or the individuals who have to enforce laws or teach our uh, kids and such, it is that lack of cultural understanding uh, for the most part that creates a, a barrier to the more effective and a higher standard of enforcement. 
Uh, one of the other issues, and it's not an issue in a negative way, but I think that it is a consideration, is that we do have a lot of biracial uh, individuals. Uh, we talk about the black Hawaiians, but we also have uh, other races that we are uh, intermingled with, and so that contributes to the comfort of living in Hawaii, as well as, for some, the challenge of acceptance by a certain group. And um, I appreciate uh, what was mentioned about the institutional practices, uh, because early on in Hawaii, there were some decisions made about uh, not accepting slavery. We have lots of history of individuals who left the United States to escape from slavery and came here, and many who went on to become very, very successful and uh, to be treated equally, as well as also some in uh, the 20th century came here and found that there were the same types of behaviors, just not from Caucasian individuals. Thank you, Alfonso. Um, did Agimi uh, or any of you have anything further to say about what you, specific to law enforcement, again, since that has been such a tremendous topic, um, you know, something, uh, if you have any other what, questions for perhaps the chief um, in terms of what you would hope would happen uh, in terms of doing better uh, moving forward. I think um, I, I heard the chief talk earlier this week about um, putting a, at least a temporary ban on chokeholds. There was that conversation. Um, there has been some national conversation about defunding and whether, I, I'm not sure how you feel about that. Did you want to pose some questions to the chief about that? And once again, it's 94-7 uh, Kumu. Yes, thank We're you. We're here <laughs> on Hawaii Matters uh, talking about Black Lives Matter specifically mm -hmm. and focusing on that. Yes, Alfonso. So I do want to address that particular, a uh, couple of the points that you raised. One is I think what makes a great community uh, sustaining is the fact that you have those things happening proactively. And I do want to give credit to the chief where credit is due. Uh, you know, the protest didn't say we needed to have the chief of police here in Hawaii or Honolulu go do these things because the chief has been engaged in the community, including the African-American community and other ethnic groups through community policing and partnerships and such. So we have a relationship that I believe exists that is a challenge and it is not political. Uh, that other communities could benefit from in the mainland. Having said that, uh, yes, I think that so far the things that I am hearing that are being done are the actual things that, that uh, all groups are saying. Let us take a comprehensive analysis of our training curriculums and our practices. Let us take a review of those things that we're doing where other departments are having issues, such as the chokeholds. Uh, have we had any improvements in complaints and resolutions uh, when, you know, because of cameras? You know, what are some of our funding or budgetary issues? And are we now able to speak to the legislature and others and say, you know, this is the data that supports, you know, us 
doing this this particular way. So I, I think those are fair things to put on the table, but I believe we need to give credit where credit is due. Thank you very much. I yeah. think Kimmy wanted to say something also. I yes. would. Um, just think, listening to the conversation, I think um, it's very clear, it's very apparent that Hawaii is different than what we're seeing across North America. And I think to the Chief's point, that it is very important that um, our police force comes from this community. Um, that creates a completely different dynamic than what we're seeing in a lot of places where black people are being policed. Um, at the same time, and you know, I understand the chief is involved in, in overseeing this agency and thinking through reforms and, and ways to improve its um, efficiency. There have been a lot of issues. Um, there were there was someone last year who was shot, uh, suspected uh, of shoplifting. There are lots of use of force complaints, and even if we think about um, the overrepresentation, as Noe mentioned, even of black people, even as a small number in our local community. Um, I, th I saw a stat from, I think, 2010 to 2018, where uh, the, the, out of the number of use of force complaints, around 7% were from people of African descent, which is much larger than our representation in the community as, as a whole. And I think it is important for us to think about how these biases, um, whether implicit or otherwise, end up in the ways that people react in the moment. I think that's really, really important. But it's also um, an opportunity for us to think about if these police are coming from our community, what can we do as a community to change the culture of how we react to people, whether it's based on their perceived race or their socioeconomic class or just the general criminality that we presume of, of people. And then one other thing I'll mention, because the chief did bring it up, that the biggest gap is the gender gap. And um, unfortunately, Honolulu Police Department has a really difficult history in the ways that some officers have used force against women and girls. And uh, that's important too, because I think we often get really stuck in this discussion around uh, policing and the relationship with black community and focus mostly on the kind of racial interactions. But the reality is if, if we're talking about an agency that has the power to use force um, and is using it unequally or using it, um, in, it sometimes in, in criminal ways against any part of our population, whether they're black or native Hawaiian or not, it's important for us to take a look at that. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Chief, did you want to react to that? I wonder how moving forward, given the perspectives you've heard here, uh, what your plans might be. And by the way, uh, again, we are listening to, uh, you are listening to 94.7 Kumu, it's a special edition of Hawaii Matters, uh, focusing on Black Lives Matter. Chief, did you have some thoughts about moving forward? Yeah, you know, I mean, we are doing bias-based policing, but when I took a look at, you know, what what we're teaching our officers, it really doesn't address the implicit bias portion of it. And I think it's important um, where to get that training from. We're, you know, still, I mean, we're going to have to explore that. And I think that's something that we need to um, put into our curriculum. You know, the other thing that I'm planning on getting, we all, we've already actually started the purchasing, is we've got, um, it's actually a, a use of force simulator uh, so that we can train the officers, we can train more officers on uh, different types of scenarios so that, you know, it's not just a shoot, don't shoot, but it's also de-escalation. So in other words, you know, if somebody, um, you know, has a gun, but they put it down, you put yours, yours down, you go to another level of force. So I think these, this type of simulator and this type of constant um, training, which we do do de-escalation de already, but I think we, could just, we can just do so much more 
Um, you know, I, I think a lot of the things, and ta this is kind of going along the lines of defunding, is that my point has always been, let's not defund, but let's fund the social service agencies that need to address the things that the police are being required to do. So when they stopped funding um, social services, um, enforcing homelessness, enforcing uh, mentally ill, dealing with the mentally ill people, dealing with uh, people with drugs, all that fell into the lap of the police department because nobody else had any place to turn. And I don't think that we as an organization are the right people to deal with this. And I think it should be uh, more along the social services um, folks who have got more on this than we do. Um, so one of the things we want to try and do is, is, is start partnering with them so that they can go with the officers and, you know, hopefully can de-escalate some of these situations. But we need to start funding the issues, whether it's housing, education. We shouldn't have in this, um, in this island people who have to go to private schools to get an education. Private, uh, public education should be as good as private education. Let's start putting money into what we need to get our cakey to get ahead in this world. Because if we don't, then we're just going to see the vicious cycle ongoing. Um, we have to give everybody a chance. Everyone needs a place to live. Everyone needs food. Everyone needs an education. Um, and by doing that, if we can move along those lines, then yeah, eventually you won't have to have as much money in the police department to deal with some of these social issues that we're dealing with now. Thank you very much, Chief Bowden. Um, Alfonso, I wondered if you could talk, because we, uh, we had a quick meeting on Friday sort of to get the Leila Land Talk story a little bit, kind of figure out where we're going with things. And one of the things that we were talking about was um, the, this notion of defunding the police. Uh, it's sort of been floating around in the ether. People have been talking about it, but I don't think people really quite understand what they're talking about. So, uh, or you know what I mean? People don't quite right. understand exactly what's happening. I think the chief uh, mentioned a little bit about it, but I'd, I'd like to know what your perspective is, what you, what you think it means. I think that we can't just leave those words, those couple of words, as all-encompassing. And I think that responsible citizens will have a dialogue that says, what do you mean when you say defund the police? And I think the chief uh, went towards articulating what does that mean. Uh, we cannot expect as citizens that the police are going to arrive on a scene uh, where they're going to be uh, dealing with homelessness, with individuals who are dealing with PTSD or drug ab substance abuse or some other issue where social services or even responding to a CPS case, right? So those individuals, yes, they're there to protect and to serve. However, we need to take a real deep look at where we have had funding shortfalls and real expectations. And unfortunately, the only group that has been left to respond to these crises in our communities are our police force. And so when we say defund the police in in general, uh, it is my humble belief that folks are trying to say that we need to make sure that proper funds are allocated in these disparate areas. 
And part of why I am somewhat uh, pleased to see discussions taking place is because it's not just how we're going to end up with reformed policing, but also what are the collateral impacts? This should drive all administrations across the nation to take a real hard look at whether or not programs and services are properly funded. And if it isn't, what are we what do we need to do to ensure that they are uh, appropriately balanced? And so when we say defund police, folks are not trying to say that, hey, you know, at least from my perspective, that, you know, you should dial 911 and there's not going to be anyone responding. You know, I think that the concern being raised right now, which a lot of responsible leaders are listening to is, guess what? The kids need services. As the chief said, every child in America deserves an equal opportunity to education, to live the American dream, you know? And so we've got to make sure that those same kids are properly fed, nurtured, and protected. And so that funding allocation is what we're talking about. Thank you very much. Uh, once again, it's 94.7 Kumu. It's Devin and Esme. Uh, we're usually on in the morning. We are on right now uh, with Hawaii Matters uh, speaking about uh, Black Lives Matter. And uh, we have an esteemed panel with us. And we're very thankful that they're with us tonight. Indeed. Thank you very much. And by the way, we do um, here on 94.7 Kumu do discussions like this on our uh, weekday morning show as well. It's called Kumu Kokua. It's an occasional series that we do 8 a.m. weekdays on 94.7 Kumu. And uh, this week, actually, we are continuing, planning to continue uh, our discuss discussion on Black Lives Matter. And uh, we're going to invite our listeners to tune in for that. And some of the people on the panel are going to be here, even though I don't think they realize it yet. <laughs> 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 you've been you've been volunteering. They're, still, they're, still, they're <laughs> still smiling. They're still smiling. So I think they're going to come back. On okay. Um, and you know that that uh, the discussion of defunding and then uh, kind of the focus that uh, then we would take the funding and resources to, and and turn it toward. Um, I think is something that we're going to talk about more in our second half of our show. Um, so we hope our listeners will be staying with us for that. Um, in, for the second half of our conversation, we're going to look at other aspects that need to be fixed in Hawaii uh, that will move us closer to equal treatment, equal opportunity with policy and education and health, social services, and also talk about media coverage and what are some changes that need to happen, uh, uh, what are the responsibilities, I think, of media to help fix the problems. Uh, we're also going to take your questions and comments by the way for our listeners out there you can get on our kumu facebook right now uh, you can also call us at 947-5868 we're not taking calls yet but we will yes. later on yes. <laughs> later on in the second half of the show um yeah so we've, we've got a couple minutes left so okay. uh just out of curiosity does anyone on the panel did you have any questions um for each other i had a, a question yes. um I know one of the things that has come up recently in Civil Beat is about the way that um, there isn't a publicly accessible database on complaints against officers or officers who have been suspended. Um, and I know that there have, have been uh, measures, you know, working their way through the legislature, not, nothing passed yet. But um, just wondering what you think about that, Chief Ballard, you know, whether the public should have a right to know about officers who have been suspended for, you know, including things like Akemi talked about, you know, 
violence against women, um, whether it's domestic partner violence within their own relationships or you know, excessive use of force against um, vulnerable folks who are in their, um, under their supervision. You know, um, we always have to weigh, you know, the privacy rights of the officers with the public's right to know um, as far as the release of the information. And I think, um, I know that there was at least three different occasions where I tried to release the information, but um, either an injunction was filed against me or a lawsuit, which is still pending in court. So I think, yes, there are certain situations, um, and I always go back and says not every time an officer is suspended, because sometimes um, the jobs that the officers do, they're held to such a higher standard for everything. For example, if they don't turn in their, if they overdraw on their gas, or if they don't turn in their mileage slip, they could possibly get suspended. And is that something that really the public needs to know? Um, versus, yeah, if they get uh, disciplined or terminated for domestic violence or excessive use of force or something like that, then um, that's something uh, that the public would probably need to know. Uh, but I think with the laws passing, and I know the uh, Justice and Policing Act also addresses that as well, um, you know, the database and the release of names. Uh, but once again, that's something that, you know, once they pass, then I'm sure that uh, mm -hmm. um, if it's passed in this legislature, that uh, it's going to be a while before that happens, because I'm sure that the union will get involved at that mm -hmm. point, too. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Noelani. Thank you, Chief. Uh, Afonso, did you have a question as well? I saw you. Yeah, I think that one other thing that's extremely important here, and this was brought up with respect to the representation, not on the initial interaction with law enforcement, but as we consider justice and true justice, uh, where we have the end result is the overcrowding of individuals, disparately so for African Americans and other minorities uh, in the prison system. And I think that, don't think, I'm absolutely certain that a major contributor to that has to be the fact that folks cannot afford true representation in the justice system. And so Hawaii lags significantly behind other states when, uh, with respect to what the general populace feels is a fair shake at the justice bar. And I, I, I unfortunately, it is so tied to that initial police impact or engagement. The end result is that that person goes and become a uh, disparately uh, a disparate representation in our prison system. And that has to be part of the total conversation. And as we move forward in this engagement, uh, having the judiciary and others and the lawmakers involved in this uh, is worthy is worthy of their inclusion. Thank you very much, Alfonso. Uh, okay, sorry, didn't want to leave you out. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I've been listening to this conversation, and I think um, there are just a couple of things I would chime in with. I'm I'm not a historian, but I think history is really important for us to be able to contextualize this moment, um, whether we're talking about Hawaii or what's happening in the U.S. Um, 
you know, the calls for for defunding and abolishing the police um, are not new. They're very they're very old. Um, they were happening in the '60s. They were happening before. They were happening in the 1860s um, because we know that policing, as as we know it, and the way that the the, the kind of large um, movement for policing comes out of. Um, being able to surveil and keep tabs on black and indigenous people in North America. Of course, in Hawaii, it's a little bit different because of our particular history here, but it come, the, the structure and the function comes from that. And so I'm just thinking about, you know, as, as we go through this week, on June 19th, um, we're celebrating Juneteenth, which is uh, the day in 1865 that enslaved people in Texas finally got the news that uh, slavery had been abolished in the United States. And before slavery was abolished in the United States, people thought, well, how are we going to get our labor? How are we going to do this? Um, how are we going to be the economic powerhouse that the United States had become at that time? Of course, the, the moves after abolishing slavery didn't necessarily make everyone free, and that's partly why we're having this conversation today. But um, I think these moves to abolish are not just about tearing things down. They're really calls to get us to think about what our values are. And uh, I've been seeing lots of municipal budgets circulate that uh, show the police line items in many places and uh, being kind of you know over the top. And I think we see that here in Honolulu as well, that one of the largest line items in our municipal budget is for the police. But we also see things like um, calls for kind of more militarized police gear. Um, that's something that happened in Ferguson. That was a huge part of how those uprisings exploded there as that community was reeling from the violence that they had absorbed for so long because their police force had lots of kind of souped up equipment. So I think that's important too. Um, and that's even something that we've seen in the last year. The, the threat of what happened to people in Ferguson was, was kind of in the air last summer when Kia'i were on Mauna Kea and there was a lot of police presence there as well. So even though we think about this, this kind of militarized police force being something that happens in North America, there are echoes here too. And I think it's important for us to think about that because the violence that's been visited on black people, even though it's not necessarily present here in the same way, the idea of it is used as a threat. Thank you, Akemi. Uh, we are now, uh, uh, mahalo to everyone, it's 94.7 Kumu. You are listening to a special edition of Hawaii Matters focusing on Black Lives Matter. Uh, we are gonna take a short break right now, but please stay with us. Uh, we will come back for our second half of our conversation and we're gonna look at what other aspects need to be fixed in Hawaii to move us closer to equal treatment and equal opportunity. We're gonna take your questions and comments. Again, you can post on our Kumu Facebook. Also get on, our, uh, we're gonna take phone calls soon, 947-5868, again, 947-5868. We will be right back. And again, you're listening to a special edition of Hawaii Matters focusing on Black Lives Matter here on 94.7 Kumu. 94.7 Kumu, KUMU Honolulu, proud to be locally owned and operated by Pacific Media Group, presents a special edition of Hawaii Matters, Black Lives Matter. And now, your hosts, Devin and Esme. Good evening, aloha, and welcome back. This is 94.7 Kumu. We are in the second half of a special edition of Hawaii Matters, focusing on the issue of Black Lives Matter. So thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Esme Infante. And I'm Devin. 
<laughs> this is, uh, again, 94.7 Kumu. Together with Pacific Media Group, we are proud to present this live on-air forum, which is scheduled to go until 8 o'clock tonight. We brought together some of Hawaii's foremost community leaders tonight to uh, talk about the issues of systemic racism, inequality, and hate violence in the framework of the death of George Floyd and the huge resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and protests worldwide, and of course here in Hawaii as well. So, by the way, if you are just tuning in, if you'd like to comment about tonight's nice discussion or you have questions for our guests, you may post them right now on our Kumu Facebook. And also in a little while, we're going to invite you to call in. So write down this number right now. It's 947-5868. Again, 947-5868. Uh, we want to remind you too that in-depth discussions like this on our weekday morning drive show happen as well. It's called Kumu Kokua. Uh, it's an occasional series at 8 a.m. weekdays nine on 94.7 Kumu. Uh, this week we'll continue the focus on issues related to Black Lives Matter. Uh, we do invite you to tune in. I believe uh, Dr. Glenn has agreed, has graciously agreed to be our first person to uh, come and join us. Uh, 94.7 Kumu Pacific Media Group is very proud to present these discussions to support our community. And we want to take a moment to remind local businesses uh, listening that starting tomorrow, Pacific Media Group and 94.7 Kumu are giving away a $25,000 advertising campaign to one lucky small business here in Hawaii. And for details, you can go to kumu.com. Uh, now, if you're just joining us here tonight on 94.7 Kumu, you missed any earlier part of Hawaii Matters, Black Lives Matter, or you'd like to hear it all again, uh, we'll be posting this conversation in its entirety on YouTube, and you'll find the link soon on our Kumu Facebook and Kumu.com. Uh, at this time, I'd like to reacquaint you with our panel here in our Kumu studio in Honolulu. First, we have Alfonso Braggs, president of the Honolulu Hawaii NAACP. Also, Susan Ballard, chief of the Honolulu Police Department. Dr. Akemi Glenn, executive director of the Popolo Project. And Dr. Noelani Goodyear Kaupua, she is the uh, head of political science at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. So welcome again to our guests. Thank you so much for giving us a portion of your of your Sunday evening uh, to be with us. And of course, mahalo also to our listeners out there. Um, I'm going to ask our, our panelists to talk for a moment about is this time different? Just before we went to break, Akemi was talking about how, you know, these discussions about defunding and how to solve racism, you know, and, and, and do better obviously are not new. Is this time different? And if so, um, what would you like to see fixed here in Hawaii? I mean, we can, we can spend hours talking about nationwide and worldwide. We'd like to focus here on Hawaii. So what other aspects need to be fixed in Hawaii? Policy, education, social services, even media coverage. What comes to mind for you first? Anybody would like to start? Oh, Alfonso, please. Yes, I, I think it's uh, important to frame the question, is this time different? Uh, I would go so far as to say, is it time for change? And I think that if we look at history, we saw in the 1860s, the question was asked, is it time for change? And then 100 years later, we encountered the same question in the 1960s. And I think that the young folk and many who have fought for civil rights uh, are asking now, we don't need to wait 100 years. The time is now. We have the momentum. And also, I think we have the attentive ear and the instructive tongue to make sure that we actually effect change that we identify. What does that change look like? In simple terms, uh, it is uh, police reform, a comprehensive review and analysis. It is 
uh, validation of our resources to make sure that we develop and sustain equitable communities. And what does a healthy community look like in the 21st century here in America? And so I don't think that there should be any difference in that uh, nationally or locally here in Honolulu, because we are such a melting pot. We are the best example of diverse folks coming together and being able to put different perspectives together on the table and working out through those differences and coming up with a sustainable plan. And I think that we we're able to also address uh, the fact that, hey, we have a lot of uh, external challenges, such as economics, being waterbound, and all of that. And if we're able to do it, we do become that model for uh, the mainland. Anyone else on that question of, yes, yes, Akemi. Yeah, I'm, and oh, I'm sorry. By the way, we are uh, you are tuning in to 94.7 Kumu. You're listening to a special edition of Hawaii Matters focusing on Black Lives Matter. Akemi, please. Yeah, I, I, to your question, is this time different? I think it is in some ways. Um, I think, as Alfonso is saying, it's been a long time growing, and there have been there's kind of an accumulation not only of grievances but also of energy. Um, we're in this moment where um, the the fact that this program tonight is called Black Lives Matter is the product of the organizing work of three women who started after the death of Trayvon Martin with a hashtag and built it into a global network of people talking about this. And the fact that just in the last couple of weeks uh, after George Floyd's death and Breonna Taylor's death and Ahmaud Arbery and just the people who were killed this past week, um, we have a, a vocabulary as a larger global community, including here in Hawaii, and we've seen mobilization around that. Um, I mentioned earlier the the kind of uprising that we've been seeing locally around Mauna Kea, the windmills in Kahuku, Hunana Niho, other places here in Hawaii where I think that there's been a lot of feeding back and forth between things like the Black Lives Matter movement and kind of local on the ground ways of organizing. Um, people are definitely using social media more and mobilizing um, not only in, in terms of getting bodies out in the street, but also educating folks. And I think that's something that's really important for us to acknowledge. And you know, as I was saying just a few minutes ago that, that these are not new things, I think that what we are seeing is a real um, kind of wave of energy that's coming. Uh, because we are also thinking of these movements as interconnected and the, the leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement also were very vocal about their support for the Kia'i and Mauna Kea. And I think that resurgence that we saw and just the energy that we saw even last weekend at the protest was related to the ways that people have been activated and inspired to actually advocate for change individually and collectively. Thank you. 94.7 Kumu, you're listening to a special edition of Hawaii Matters focusing on Black Lives Matter. Speaking of those protests, were you folks surprised to see 10,000 people out on the streets last week? and? Uh, and, and, and to the point of it being different this time, did you have some thoughts I, I certainly about that? was. I, mm -hmm. My family and I attended the uh, march on Saturday, and we went down there thinking maybe there'll be, you know, we didn't know how many people, but um, I want to really honor and lift up the organizing work that high school students did. You know, I mean, the, the march on Saturday was initially the brainchild of high school students. Um, who got the support, um, logistical support of various various kinds of groups. But um, I think it's amazing that youth are 
saying that you know we are not going to stand for this anymore, and that they're willing to take that leadership. Um, in terms of is this moment different, I think it is. The, if we look at the social movements, the protests, the scale of it is certainly on a much larger scale than anything that we have um, seen. You know, historians are comparing um, this moment in terms of um, uprisings around Black Lives Matter to what was going on in the late 1960s and saying, you know, even more cities, larger um, numbers. And uh, as Akemi said, it's, you know, there's also these connections and there was actually very intentional connection that um, the Black Lives Matter uh, organizers did with the folks um, at Standing Rock during that, um, that movement. And, and then also with Mauna Kea uh, here. So I think it's certainly a moment of, um, that's ripe for a change. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Kopo. Uh, we are 94.7 Kumu, we are Devin and Esme, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're leading a discussion here at Hawaii Matters uh, this evening on Sunday night uh, about Black Lives Matter. Uh, what we wanted to do also was make sure that we included people calling in and letting us know if they had any questions. So if you have any for our panel, uh, you can feel free to call us at uh, 947-5868. And actually, uh, we'd like to go to Emily, uh, who did have a question for us. So Emily, you are on the air. Good evening. Welcome to 94.7 Kumu. Hi, Emily. Hi, good evening. Aloha. Hi, everybody, our panelists. Um, thank you all for, um, for hosting this. This is really excellent. Um, so I'm wondering, I have a little bit of, a little bit of context, but um, I'm, you know, I'm just wondering, you know, it's, so it's well known um, and much more mainstream now in Hawaii and, and well documented by the researchers coming out of UH and um, as well as Oxford and universities in Japan and the United States that, you know, that we in fact live in the Hawaiian Kingdom as an independent country that's been under prolonged illegal military occupation by the United States. So with that in mind, I'm, you know, my question to the panelists is, um, is how, how you think that we can stand in solidarity with um, Black and Native communities in struggle for liberation in North America while being still clear about who we are and what the real struggle and the real root of that struggle is here in Hawaii. Would any of our panelists like I'll, to I'll take tackle first, that? Uh, shot at that? Please, I, Noelani. I think that, um, as Akemi talked about, it's really important to historicize, right? And so if we look at the expansion of American empire, both across the North American continent and then into the Pacific, you know, white supremacy in the ways that was it was enacted locally was very much tied to the expansion of U.S. empire and the taking of indigenous lands. Um, so I think that's that's really important um, to to think about. Uh, when I've looked, you know, a lot of my research has particularly been around the histories of education. Um, and recently, I was looking um, at and presenting on the history of Kamehameha and actually the way that our school, uh, which was founded under the um, in 1887 was connected with institutions in the U.S. South that were um, educating black and indigenous people for an industrial white supremacist um, society. And so it's important to reckon with those histories, you know, and the ways that they are perpetuated today. Um, there's a really great uh, 
praise that um, various folks that I've seen, including one of the speakers at the march on Saturday, Joy Lehuanani Enamoro used, which is Black Lives Matter in the Hawaiian Kingdom, which is a way to kind of join these two um, struggles to say that you know the freedom of all peoples is important. Thank you for that. Did Excellent. we have another caller? Uh, yes, we do, actually. All of our lines are up now. So. <laughs> uh, and uh, to the listeners who are calling in, uh, we apologize if we're not allowing back and forth. It's just there's more than one person on the line. So we'll basically take your call and then, uh, or take your question and then uh, let you go. All right, so we have Kevin uh, next on the line. Kevin, good evening. You're here with uh, Devin and Esme and our panel on Hawaii Matters for 94.7 Kumo. Aloha, all. Uh, thank you so much for this incredible dialogue um i i wanted to thank chief ballard for the uh moral clarity and uh courage to make the statements that i heard earlier um you said we need to start funding housing education um you said you won't need to have as much money in the police department um if these uh services are, are properly funded um and i wanted to ask if you can commit either comment now or commit to making a recommendation of a, a dollar amount that uh hpd's budget could immediately be reduced by uh, i would have to tell you at this point in time without cutting services um there really is nothing uh, the budget is pretty tight because of the COVID 19 um so i really could not i mean we didn't even get what we asked for uh, so as i was talking is it the defunding or less funding would be once these other services are up it's not either or um, because if you start cutting the budget now and you don't have these other services available then all those calls are still going to fall back on the police with less resources thank you chief okay and uh one more caller here on the line and unfortunately Good evening. Uh, you're here on Hawaii Matters with Devin and Esme. Uh, our caller, your name is? I'm sorry. Hi. Hello? Uh, hi. What's your name? Uh, my name is Dylan Davis. Okay. Dylan, hi. You're here with us on the air with uh, Devin and Esme and our esteemed panel. Uh, did you have a question? Yes, I did. Um, given the current situation um, that's occurring, and it, it's kind of... Uh, based on the pandemic and the fact that Honolulu police officers were actually very misinformed about information on the pandemic, then that kind of like sets a precedent that they're going to be misinformed about Black Lives Matter. And meaning, which is, where, where do we get a source uh, for the proper type of education, which it gets kind of a, it's kind of a long explanation because Okay, let's, let's keep it short on that. You know, um, how are you guys going to be appropriately getting the right types of information on enforcing this situation? Okay. All right. I, I think I under I, I'm not sure. <laughs> Panel, it, it seemed like he was, he seemed to be asking um, what are the steps that I guess the police are going to take to try to make sure that officers are. Well informed. I'm wondering, I don't know if this is where the caller was coming from, but I know, for example, on social media, there was, um, 
you know, a sort of rumor circulating that there might be um, adjutants, perhaps from far right wing, you know, groups that were coming would come over to Hawaii and create a big problem, or you know, or various political political mm -hmm. persuasions at the Black Lives Matter protests. And what we saw on Saturday that it was completely peaceful, that there were no issues. I'm not sure, but maybe that's what he might be referring to. Thank you, Noelani. And I think also Something that refers like that. to, I've seen commentary about how <laughs> even if that was false, those rumors were false, that it can still breed foment you know, with people who think that's going to happen and then create a situation. And so perhaps the caller was asking how what the what HPD might be doing to be proactive about that in the future. We Well, even when we, as soon as we found that information, we were out on our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the social media platforms uh, to say that uh, that information was not true. Um, and I'm, you know, we got it out as best we can. But of course, you know, social media just is takes on a life of its own. Too. Once it goes, once it goes viral, it's very hard yeah. to sort of yeah. mm -hmm. get ahead of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. All right, 94.7 Kumu, you are listening to a special edition edition of Hawaii Matters, uh, Black Lives Matter. Wanted to, before we, we move on, uh, give our panelists uh, a chance to, again, the original question was about if we are quote unquote defunding and looking at building up others, other types of services with the, uh, with the community, with our government. What does that look like? What do you want to see happen? I like can, tangibly, yes. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in first. Please do. I think what I would like to see happen is I would like to see the department sort of diversify, for lack of a better term. For example, officers should not be out giving parking tags. There could be non-armed security-type people who are, you know, who go out and do parking tags. Officers would not need to go to nonviolent calls. You would have a, a group of uh, social workers or whatever to uh, um, address these nonviolent calls. So I think there's a, a lot of, um, you know, those those two specifics. You know, even even with the homeless, uh, that and I, you know, I've talked about it before, having more. And it always goes back to the social social workers. I mean, they play such a huge part um, in what the police department does um, and they do an awesome job but there's just not enough of them um, to go around uh, I would like to see more people uh, especially the young younger groups from all different uh, ethnicities join the police department so they can become a part of the change because it's their values that are going to change the department. Um, so they need to come in uh, and take a look around and let us, I mean, it, they're the ones that are out on the road. They're the ones that are the face of the department. And so um, come in, join us and, you know, make us change, show us how to change. Thank you. Anyone else have some thoughts about what you would like to see tangibly happen? I think that conversation about defunding opens up the possibility to think about priorities and budget priorities, right? And when we look at the ways that the city budget is um, allocated, that those community services that we're talking about, homeless service providers, hygiene centers, um, support services, elderly services, receive um, the police department receives two and a half times more than those kinds of services. So thinking differently about that. The other thing I'd really like for us to think about is decriminalizing homelessness. So, 
you have um, an issue where actually the sit lie ban is being expanded to other parts of um, of the island here on Oahu, and this isn't solving the problem, right? And it's actually creating more work for the police officers. I mean, I'm just thinking about the specific case of I, I run often in the mornings around Diamond Head, and there are a lot of homeless folks, right, who live in the areas around Diamond Head, and there's often police there who are surveilling that population and, and others. But when you look at the two officers that were recently killed in that area, it was from a resident of that area, not the homeless folks who are, you know, trying to find somewhere to live. Um, so I think that's another thing that we really have to think about. Mm, thank you. 94.7 Kumu, you are listening to a special edition of Hawaii Matters, focusing on Black Lives Matter. Did we want to go to a caller? Yes, I believe we had uh, a person on the line here. We have Kea. Kea, good evening. Hey, good evening. Blessings uh -huh. to you guys. Thank you. How you guys doing? All we're, right. We're pretty good. Actually. <laughs> yeah, I hope you're doing all right, too. Hey, I just, I, first, I want to just say blessings to our police departments across the nation and here in Hawaii. You know, a lot of, a lot of what I've been hearing is um, pretty much change the police, change the police. For me, you know, I haven't been on the good side of the law and stuff like that. I've been, you know, with gang stuff and stuff like that. Mm. I feel they've been treating everybody right. I mean, I think as a society, we got to change and stop pointing the finger at these guys. Because if you want to see what it's like to be a police officer, I think they, back in the days they had a thing called um, ride-alongs. And every situation is different from homeless, from parking tickets. There's, our, our society now is not as it was before, but... um. I think that um, our police department is getting bashed too much right now. And defunding the police, I went to the rally on Saturday. Those people wasn't chanting, praise the police. A lot of them was chanting, defund the police in a way to get rid of the police, like what's happening in Seattle. Mm. So the media needs to not take the side of what's trying to be said, but what needs to be said. Because in Seattle right now, it's not what they want. They want to get rid of the police. And all I got to say here is, um, you know, with, with, with what happened to... Mr. Floyd is, is wrong, but not all police is like that. Pretty much, I think there's 44 million black people in America. And um, I think nine people got shot last year, black people. And there's more white people that got shot. And I'm not, I'm not de I'm defending what he did because it's totally wrong. And he's going to get justice. America is going to give justice to this guy. So I just want to say the police department is doing a great job. And you know why, you know, they do a great job. People get shot. But it's just our society now. You know, we got to change as a people, too, and not just point the finger at the police. Because I don't think there's a police going out wanting to shoot black people all the time. There's not KKK going around trying to say that the police is um, out there to kill black people, you know. Mm. But then again, what happened is not right. And I think the police needs to um, get um, some thumbs up because they do a great job. I've seen it, I've seen it firsthand on the wrong side of the law and on the good side of the law. So that's what I got to say. Okay. Thank you very much, Kerry. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Um, you know... I, I sort of wanted to pivot off that question that he, or statement that he made. Um, you know, uh, Afonso uh, Akemi, we also spoke about the media and its role with regards to police and how they are, how they are perceived. Um, and, and I wonder if you could kind of touch on that a little bit. Like, you know, you, you were mentioning, I think, uh, the other day about the media's role in sort of pushing a certain kind of narrative that ne doesn't necessarily have to happen. So. I think first and foremost, um, I'm old enough to know about great journalists and great reporters. Uh, when I thought of Walter Cronkite, I found no greater 
uh, representative of true, accurate, uh, just direct, honest reporting. Uh, I think that one of the, the most coveted awards is the Edward R. Murrow Award that journalists desire. And so I think that what has happened in the media world is that it has gone too far towards commercialization, sensationalization, and what uh, they could polarize in order for an economic gain. And that does not allow for them, uh, for the most part, to accurately report. And I think that it has been coupled by the fact that uh, now there are so many mediums that there is m the risk of misinformation that the caller brought up earlier is, is so small that it's okay to disinformation, misinformation, mislead because it plays to a particular agenda that someone has or whatever. So that is, that's the problem that we have. And so when we talk about what we would like to see changed, uh, this begs for every entity to do what I call a stand down and just evaluate their truth in lending. Are they delivering honestly on what is their mission, goal, and objective to their customer? And so we, the customer, right now are buying things, but we are not really getting the quality that we should have. And economics is playing a huge role in that. Okay. Thank you very much. 94.7 Kumu, uh, we are here with a special edition of Hawaii Matters, it's Devin and Esme, and uh, we are, th that was, you just heard uh, Alfonso Braggs, who is a representative of the Hawaii chapter for the NAACP. Uh, we're talking about media and its relation to the Black Lives Matter movement, so I was wondering if, Akemi, if you wanted to chime in with anything? Sure, yeah, I think media plays a, a tremendous role in this moment that we're experiencing right now. Um, both in terms of representation of black people um, and what's happening across North America, and also in terms of, you know, as the caller was saying, he has had positive experiences with the police. Um, that's not the case for all of us. Um, even for my myself, with all of the extra letters after my name, I've had interactions with police that were less than respectful. Um, and so, you know, I'm glad to hear that that was the experience that the caller had. Um, but I think that we're not talking about individual police officers and their their you know the way they comport themselves we're talking about systemic issues that's what black lives matter is calling us to really have a conversation about and there's no way that we can ignore that there is a you know there's a convergence of the ways that over the last several decades um, just in like popular media and entertainment the way that police procedurals represent police in a certain way um, but also primes us to think about criminals, right? So if you see someone who's having an interaction with the cops, they probably did something. And I'm sad to say that, you, you know, even though this, the caller was mentioning what happened to George Floyd, I saw a lot of people in social media that I'm connected to here saying, well, he must have done something. You know, police don't necessarily take that amount of force to a, a suspect unless they've done something. And the reality is, especially when we're talking about black community and we're talking about this again, over many, many decades and many years, um, we're often suspected because we fit a profile. 
And while that might not be happening in the same numbers, the same frequency here in Hawaii, that's what this Black Lives Matter moment is about, is people saying, you know, media representations, um, the different ways that we're primed for implicit and explicit bias, we have to interrupt that because this is not just individuals making these choices, this is part of a systemic problem that we can address. Thank you very much. Did we have another caller? Yes, we actually yes. do. We have mm -hmm. Kareem on the line. Uh, Kareem, good evening. And welcome to 94.7 uh, Kumu. By the way, again, uh, you are listening to a special edition of Hawaii Matters, focusing on Black Lives Matter. Kareem, thank you. Go ahead. You had a question? Yes, thank you. Hello, everybody. Uh, hello, Chief uh, Alfonso. Hey, I'm, I'm from New York City. I moved here in 97. Um, I've had a lot of bad experiences in New York. I have only had only one bad experience here. But my question is, I know a lot of people in the military. I know a lot of people in the fire department. And the issue of screening is a question because FBI reported three years ago that KKK had infiltrated local police departments around the country. That was never fully addressed. It's kind of like the Colin Kaepernick thing. Nobody really believed it until now. But my question is, the um, issue like Philando uh, Castile, where the officer said, I was in fear for my life. That's what I did what I did. If it's an issue in the military where if you have PTSD, you can't f serve in a strike force anymore. You can't be in special forces. If you answer no to the question in the fire department, are you going to be willing to run into a fire and not run away? And you answer no, you're not going to be a, f a fire fireman. So what is the criteria for a police officer? Maybe not here because it's different here, but in the mainland. And I don't know if the criteria is the same in every department for you to be kicked out. Or for you to, is it a yearly thing, annual review, psychological review? Because if there isn't something like that, I believe there should be because there's too many people claiming to be firing and killing people who are unarmed, black men mostly, and now black women, and, and saying that, oh, I was in fear for my life. How f fearful can you be if you're doing this for a living? If you're that fearful, maybe you should get a different job. There's one radio host in Hawaii who used to be a police officer. He quit because of whatever reason, mostly because he said to pay and was too stressful. So if that's the case, this is not the career for you if you're going to enter it into that career field and be fearful for your life. Forgive your children and step away because you shouldn't be a police officer. Okay. I'm just, I'm just wondering. I tried out for the police department. I got kicked out in the last process because I knew uh, somebody in jail. Hmm. Okay. And I know two other people who got kicked off because they had a fight defending somebody else. So they didn't make it into the, um, even into the academy. Okay. But I'm not understanding how these people are still on the force claiming I'm in fear for my life. So that was my question. Again, reiterate, is there a kind of screening factor once a police officer says that? Caller, thank you thank very you, much. Thank you, appreciate it. Yes. Uh, Chief Susan Ballard, would you like to respond to that? Uh, well, the officers have uh, go through quite a bit of psychological evaluation when they first come in the department, um, and there's, uh, unless there's a reason, we have what we call an early warning system within the police department, so um, it can be triggered if an officer has uh, complaints or 
um, their work product, um, different things. And then that person, we do what we call a fitness for duty, and it'll go up to our psychologist. We have a psychologist who works for the police department, and then she will evaluate whether the person needs to uh, come up and get treatment, whether with her or with another licensed psychologist. Um, And to his point, and this is one of the things that I've talked to our training academy about as well, and I think this is throughout the United States, um, is that I really think we've got to go back and look at our training. And this was, I mean, we need to have the best people out at our academies training our recruits. But for us, I mean, we do, but at the same time, we need to make sure that um, that what they're teaching and they're not teaching an us versus them mentality or everybody is out to get you. Um, so therefore, every time you walk up to somebody, you stop a car, whatever, be wary because they're going to kill you. And I think by teaching that type of mindset uh, that it gets ingrained that everyone you deal with is going to hurt you. So you always have to be ready. Um, and I think that's wrong. And I think that's a, a culture that needs to change. You need to be aware, but you can't teach that it's always us versus them and everyone's going to kill you. Mm. Thank you very much, Chief. Appreciate that. Once again, it's uh, Devin and Esme here uh, from the Rise and Drive usually, but we are here in Hawaii Matters uh, special edition. Uh, we are here speaking about Black Lives Matter. I had a question uh, for uh, Kemi and Alfonso. Um, my cousins are African-American. Uh, my aunt married my Uncle Ken, who's a six foot three black man. He, they got married, they left, and my, uh, my, my three uh, female cousins came along. Uh, they've kind of spread to different parts of the, um, of the continent. Um, my cousin Adrian is a doctor in uh, African-American studies. Uh, she's world-renowned. She's all of those things, and yet, as a professor at Ohio State, she got stopped for going 27 in a 25. And when the police officer was walking up to her car because she had a black Audi with, I guess, tint on the back, which was factory provided, the police uh, woman actually walked up to her with her hand on her gun. And my cousin didn't know what to do. She was, she was freaking out. Um, my other, uh, her, her two sons um, told me a story about uh, one of them just sitting and just hanging out at Ohio State. He was just waiting with his friend. And two police officers came up on him, guns drawn, put a gun to his head and said, what are you doing here? And it was not, he was doing nothing. He was just sitting there being him, doing what he was doing. Uh, Another cousin, uh, my other cousin was a a graduate student at Tulane. Uh, He went to the bathroom. He'd been a graduate student for a couple years. He uh, He went to the bathroom. The next thing he knew, there were policemen in the, outside his stall saying you need to come out now um, when he asked what was happening they said a woman who works in the building didn't know why you were there and that's why we're here and these are not these are not stories that they told me in a way that was not foreign to them they've had this happen before and when we talk about the Black Lives Matter movement when we talk about the change that we're hoping for those are the things that hit me because they told it to me in a way that was not even, they weren't even emotional about it. They're like, yeah, that happens. I said, how can, they, how can they tag you for going 27 and 25? She goes, well, if you're driving the wrong car. 
She says, my cousin's, uh, my, my cousin Jordan, he speaks very slowly, very slowly, very deliberately. He very rarely raises his voice. And when she asked him, when people ask him why he does that, he says, because I don't know who I'm dealing with. And if I raise my voice to the wrong person, I get shot. Um, I, I'm trying to figure out how, as we go through with this movement, as things pick up speed, and hopefully they pick up speed, and we get more more awareness and more change how can that not happen anymore do you see a world alfonso where that kind of stuff doesn't happen where my cousin doesn't have to worry about those things because i i have no experience with them at all it, when he was telling me these stories it freaked me out and i i didn't know how to handle it um so and i just keep wondering okay i want to help you but I'm afraid that whatever's going to happen is not going to be enough. That these things are going to continue to happen to you, even though you are a young, proud, intelligent black man. You may have a doctorate, and someone will still come up on you and do something like this to you. Sorry, that was more of a statement than a question. I apologize, but <laughs> I, I've been I've been holding this in because I've I've spoken to my cousins over the last couple of weeks, and and I've spoken to them this past week because I knew we were going to do this. And I know it was important for me to, to understand what they're going through because what they're going through in the continental US is different from what's happening here. Uh, my my African-American friends who live here don't have to worry about that, at least not that I know of. Um, so uh, sorry, I just kind of wanted to get your if I If I may, if I may pose that in the form of a question. Sorry. Do you, given these stories that which are clearly, obviously not new to you, these types of stories, do you see the end of this in our lifetime, given what's happening right now? Do we have hope for it being solved? And what does that look like? Like, what would need to happen in order for you to feel satisfied that we're not going to hear stories like that anymore, that things like that will not happen anymore? Akemi, okay, you uh, have something to say about that? Yeah, um, thank you for sharing those stories. And I think it's it's really poignant and important that those are stories of people who you love and are connected to um, and that you're thinking of them as humans, right? Um, sometimes this conversation gets very abstract. And I've had people say, well, it's always been happening to black people. What do you think? It's just going to go away. Um, you know, at the, at the start, Alfonso was talking about his own experience going to elementary school. My parents also went to segregated schools in North Carolina. They actually went to segregated schools all the way up until um, my mom went to a, a historically black college and my dad integrated his senior year, which was really, really tough for him. Um, he was one of five black kids at his high school and then one of only a handful at the University of North Carolina where he had a pretty terrible time, actually. But um, I grew up first generation post-segregation. I grew up in the South myself, and um, some things had changed. But I think what's most important, and the reason why we're seeing this movement right now, even with people throwing statues into the river and toppling, you know, I never thought I would see someone take down a statue of Jeff Davis in Richmond, but it <laughs> happened. Um, what's happening is culture change, right? And so I think a lot of this conversation even our conversation a little bit about defunding the police or abolishing the police is about strategy and what kinds of structures are we going to put there. Those are important. But more than anything, we have to have a massive culture change. Um, we have to think about how white supremacy has incentivized us to not think of black people as fully human. We think of them as people to manage, 
that's an inheritance of slavery. And even, I mean, this is for all of us, even black people, right? We're all inducted into this system of thinking. Um, so it's really important for us not only to humanize people, but be committed to culture change and think about, um, you know, what are the things you would need to know about someone to think of them as a full human? What are the things you would need to know about Hawaii to be able to encounter black people anywhere in the world, not just in North America, and understand that they are fully human? So I think there's there's the history part, but there's also the practice of us, you know, getting into the practice of seeing each other as fully human. And then once we've gotten there, if you don't think that a human should be executed for possibly having a counterfeit $20 bill by someone standing on his neck, what are the actions that you're going to take? That's why we see people coming out in such massive numbers here in Hawaii and around the world, because people are tapping into that humanity and saying, those are human people. No one should experience that. I will be engaged in action to change that. Thank you. Wow, that's great. Anybody else want to talk about, are we going to see this change in our lifetime and what does it look like? I, I think that uh, a very good question and thank you very much. Uh, I think that what you did is that you affirmed why black lives matter. And I also hope that an outcome of this I doubt that it will happen before I pass on, uh, is that we will be able to answer why for future generations. And unfortunately, Frederick Douglass thought that by now we would have answered the why. Because in the 1860s, all we have to do is look, 80% of the world's cotton came on the backs of slaves. That's why there was such a polarizing push to hold on to slavery, economics. So when we look in 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where African-American communities were thriving, and what did we do? We burned it down. It was about economics. Today in 2020, I think, that one of the major contributing factors is that people of color have the ability and the wherewithal to again have economic sufficiency. And the only way that they are being controlled is economics. It is a denial of rights that is being put on them through systemic long systemic practices. I mean, it's everything from the Supreme Court all the way down. So we don't have to look far to be able to answer the why. I think that if there's an outcome that we ought to be achieving, whether it is in our education system, in our police department, we have to be able to secure for future generations why black lives matters. Okay, thank you very much, Alfonso. Great answer. Um, we want to go to the phone lines really quickly. Uh, Roger, Roger, we have you on live uh, here in Hawaii Matters with Devin and Esme. Uh, did you have a question for our panel? Uh, I guess an easier way to phrase it is to say that uh, 
in military training, or I'm sorry, in police training, should we demilitarize the police and not have them so aggressively trained for hostile situations for no reason? Um, in essence, just demilitarize their training and bring it down a notch and scale everything back, maybe even degun them because uh, the gun gives them a false sense of uh, power and authority. Mm-hmm. There's a reason they have a gun. It's not to be in control. It's to use it if it's necessary, but it's the user that has to make that de- determination. And if the user can't make that determination based on the training that they receive, which was kind of in line with military training, then we need to demilitarize the police. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. I, I think we I think we figured out the question. So, um, Chief, I believe Roger's question was more about maybe semantics about it, not so much defunding as demilitarizing the police. We Our training um, doesn't really focus on the training that the military gets. Um, as far as, I, I, and I'm assuming he's talking about um, like riot gear and that type of stuff. So if you take that away and something happens um, or uh, like our SSD, our SWAT team, and there's a, a hostage type of situation or, um, you know, the different types of things that they respond to, um, without that, I mean, I, and, I, and I can point to we have Bearcats. We don't, we, and one thing, we don't get anything from the military. Um, we do not uh, participate in their 1031 program. Uh, the bearcats we got are for certain situations. Can you uh, just so you can explain what a bearcat is? Okay, it's uh, <laughs> like an armored vehicle, small armored vehicle, and so we've actually gone into situations uh, where people were being held hostage and gunshots were being fired, and we take these vehicles so that we're able to get the residents out safely. If we don't have that equipment or we don't have the gear that the officers need to resolve the situation, who do we send in? Who's, who's gonna do it? I mean, are we gonna call the military and have them do it? So it's a necessary evil, but, you're, but it has to be controlled. Um, it's not just to be used willy-nilly. Um, and it, it all comes down to decision-making that is given to the commander of that unit. Um, but it, it's something that we need to have because I'm sure that someone who's getting fired on would love to see the police show up with the gear that they have. Mm. Okay, thank you very much, Chief. Thank you, Chief. 94.7 Kumu, you are listening to a special edition of Hawaii Matters focusing on Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, we are uh, very, very lucky to have this esteemed panel here tonight, and I'm afraid that we are running out of time. Unfortunately, we are going only until 8 o'clock. So uh, with the short amount of time that we have left, I did want to ask our panelists to give our listeners some takeaways from tonight. Um, what can they do? Personally, what, if, if you're a listener out there, uh, I'm asking our panelists to tell you, what can you personally do to be part of the solution, to move forward the uh, Black Lives Matter or equality um, issues and, and be an effective ally. Would any of you like to, um, uh, from our panelists, like to take that on first? Uh, maybe I'll go first. Okay, I don't, no, so I don't, I don't have to follow any of the fabulous <laughs> answers that will come after me. Um, but you know, really kind of following on what Alfonso said and your stories, Devin, which were beautiful, um, and that what you're doing is to think about how Black Lives Matter to you, right? And I think that's um, one thing that 
all of us who live in Hawaii um, can think about is how do Black Lives Matter to us? How have Black people made our own lives enriched in different ways? You know, so when I think about my own life, I think about the Black teachers who taught me algebra in intermediate school. I think about my Black classmates who helped me stay safe on the city bus, you know, riding after school. I think about um, the Black professors who mentored me in college, graduate school, and beyond, who, you know, welcomed me into their homes, who um, we shared meals together. Um, you know, all of the ways that um, black music has been, you know, the soundtrack of so many things in our lives. Um, so if we can think about how we have benefited from the thriving of black people, then we also can, as, as those of us who are non-black, you know, um, can think about why it's important for us to stand up at this moment. And I think one of the ways that racism perpetuates itself is when people think that, well, if I don't do anything, I'm just being neutral. But in fact, these systems of power, you have to actually actively act against them. Otherwise, you know, power and authority and wealth keeps flowing in a particular way. And so if we're not being actively anti-racist, then we're just being complicit with those systems. Thank you. Thank you, Noelani. Um, Akemi, why don't I have you go next? Again, we are asking, you know, what are the takeaways for our listeners and what steps can they personally do to uh, be an, an effective ally? I would encourage the listeners to first um, learn about black folks here in Hawaii. Even though we're small numbers, um, we've been here for a long time. And as Noelani has said, um, we're part of the community. We're part of your ohana. Um, we, you know, might live next door to you. So, um, I would encourage folks to, to learn more about that history, learn about the community that's here now, but also at the same time, um, be mindful of how people might be dealing with this moment. Um, I'm sure lots of black listeners to this program have had the experience in the last few weeks where um, they're the one black person everybody knows, so everyone calls them. <laughs> and uh, while I encourage you to learn more about our experiences, you know, maybe do some Googling. Um, because, uh, you know, part of this experience for a lot of us, too, is very personal. Um, and I shared earlier that, you know, even though George Floyd is not someone I knew personally, people that I love knew him and knew his family. So when we're experiencing this moment, we're grieving. So part of that uh, allyship is understanding that we might be responding in a different way than you're responding to this moment. And though it might be the first time that you've really taken to heart the idea that Black Lives Matter or said it in those words, um, this is something that we've been thinking literally for hundreds of years and every single day. So um, be mindful of that in your asking, but also you know, do what you can to educate yourself and find out how you can keep asking that question, how do I be a good ally? Don't think that there's just one answer for that. Mm. Thank, Thank you, you very you. much. Thank oh. you. 94.7 Kumu, yes, again, you are listening to a special edition of Hawaii Matters focusing on Black Lives Matter. Um, Chief Ballard, I wonder if you might talk about how people can support the police department as you move forward trying to help lower bias, make things more equitable, and, and, and other efforts moving forward? You know, one way is think about joining the police department, becoming part of the change to make sure that that uh, culture change is there, um, you know, help, help out in that way. And just in general, um, with the Black Lives Matter, get to know people, you know, talk to people. Get to know them as an individual, um, not as a group, um, because once you get to know people as an individual, then you can see that 
you know, everybody is human and, and everybody's got likes, desires, um, and everybody is different and appreciate those differences um, and take everything into account. Thank you, Chief. Thank and you. finally, um, yes. 94.7 Kumu, uh, again, you're listening to a special edition of Hawaii Matters. Alfonso's Focusing been taking lots Black of Lives notes yes, while we've been I talking, so I know, which is I know why I wanted, <laughs> which is why I wanted to end with him. <laughs> Thank you Please. very much. Yes. I, I think that uh, what we all can do uh, to validate, uh, first and foremost, is that we have to exercise our most precious and inalienable right, and that is the right to vote. Uh, we, we complain a lot but I often wonder how many of the people who are out there on the right or the left of the issues of the day actually vote, register, and get involved. The second one is, is that it's critical for us so that the funding for these programs that are currently underfunded, uh, we can make a dynamic change in that if we participate in the census. Those are the two most important things that I believe that we take positive control of. And and the last two, which are quick, uh, I think that one of the things we commonly do during Black History Month is that we remind folks, what if? What if that black individual who you believe may or may not uh, life was had value to it, what if they didn't exist? George Washington Carver in his monumental inventions, all of the inventions in, we, in science and technology. What if Alice Ball did not exist, you know, what would have happened to the people, you know, on that island suffering from leprosy? And then finally, I think that uh, we could all do more to get involved. We talk about City Hall and the legislature and the governor's office, but few of us are willing to work with committees and commissions and community groups to bring about change in our community. So we need to get involved. Thank you very much. Thank you. And on that note, this has been a special community presentation of Hawaii Matters, a weekly public affairs program produced by Pacific Media Group Oahu and myself. Devin. <laughs> yes, thank you. And uh, we would like to thank our guests tonight once more, uh, Dr. Noelani Goodyear Ka'opua, Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, Dr. Akemi Glenn, Founder and Executive Director of the Popola Project, Alfonso Braggs, President of the NAACP here in Honolulu, Hawaii, Guam, Japan, and Korea chapters as well, and uh, Chief Susan Ballard of the Honolulu Police Department. We'll have links to tonight's broadcast and to our guests on kumu.com shortly, and we invite you to listen to Kumu tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. as myself and Esme. Uh, we're going to have more conversation with uh, Dr. Glenn. Uh, that's tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock, right here, 94.7 Kumu. Please do tune in. Um, Hawaii Matters, Black Lives Matter is a special public affairs presentation of Pacific Media Group. Chuck Bergson, uh, President, Director of Programming, Kelsey Yogi, Director of Marketing and Promotions, Christine Yasuma, Online Management, Casey Oyama, Director of Production and tonight's program, Michael T, and Director of Technical Operations, Aaron Savage. This program is copyrighted 2020 by PMG Hawaii and no rebroadcast or distribution of this program online, on air, or anywhere may occur without receiving written permission from the owner. Thank you again for listening to 94.7 Kumu. And we now return to our regularly scheduled Sunday evening programming. Mahalo, everyone. Mahalo. Thank you. Mahalo. Thank you. I learned a lot. Thank you.